We don't have a text as such today. In fact, what I have written in my notes is not John chapter 12, but 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It might seem like an odd verse to use in a series on a theology of food or a theology of eating. I hope that by the end of the sermon, it will make some sense. As we begin today, let's acknowledge, let's come to grips with the reality that food or eating involves death. Eating is the daily reminder of the fact that we are mortal. We eat to live, knowing that without food we will starve and die. But for us to eat, there must also be death. Without the death of others, we will have no food. But for us to live and eat well, we need to know what death is. And I would argue that we can only properly understand death when it is placed in a Trinitarian perspective. Let's go back to the matter of eating and death. We must recognize that our earthly life's movement is, among other things, eating through death that also ends in death. No matter how much we eat or how well we eat, our biological life, as well as the lives of others, will come to an end. The inevitability of death is not a guarantee, however, that we will know how to face it. You would think that everyone would know, oh, one day I will die, therefore I need to be prepared to face it as I should. We would all be prepared, and yet oftentimes that is not the case. In the same way, you would think that people would recognize that there's this interdependence in creation and it would cause us to recognize that we have responsibilities toward others. We saw this in the matter of membership. But in fact, that doesn't happen either. Knowing that we will die can result in strategies of distortion, denial, or destruction. What happens is that oftentimes our sinful, self-glorying, self-centeredness will attempt to secure life at the expense of others. It will attempt to secure and view life as a private possession, something that is to be protected and extended at all costs. For us to live and eat well, as I said a moment ago, we need to know what death is. And we will only know death properly when it is placed in a Trinitarian perspective. In the temporal and mortal flesh of Jesus, God's communion life is revealed as the life that offers itself completely. Jesus, I would argue, in his life and death, transforms the meaning of life and death by placing them both within the context of an offering, a self-offering. So, let's begin today by acknowledging, by accepting, that it is a mistake to view all death as evil because death's true meaning is revealed in the light of the self-giving Christ, who is the true life of the world. Now, death can be defined, can be viewed from different perspectives. Biologically, death is the cessation of an individual's biochemical functions. Theologically, however, in scripture, death is a self-offering movement in which the individual gives himself or herself to another for the furtherance of another's life. 
this theological view of death presupposes a fundamentally different understanding of life. Rather than viewing life as a possession, it views life as something that is to be given away. You are in John chapter 12. Look, if you would, at verses 24 and 25. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is telling us that for a life to be full, it must be given away. To live well means that we must learn to receive gratefully the gifts of others, but we must also learn to die well by turning our living into a gift for others. Why is that? We know that this is scripture, and yet what Jesus says in verse number 25 sounds so counterintuitive. It runs contrary to what we would normally think. Turning our life, our living, into a gift for others is the most fitting acknowledgement that what we have in the first place is gift, that it has been given to us. And it is the most faithful way of imitating, of participating in the Creator's self-giving care and provision for life. Creation is the altar on which we are to give these gifts. To be made in the image of the triune God of Trinity is to be invited to share in the shaping of the world as an offering of love. John, writing in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 3, writes, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Life is meant to be given away. But this self-giving is not easy. It doesn't come naturally. We resist, we resist this. We're afraid to do this, to give ourselves away, our energies, our resources, even our bodies, because we fear rejection or abuse. What if, in fact, we give ourselves away and the gift is deemed worthless or it goes unnoticed, that the world doesn't notice that, in fact, we have given our lives away for others? I think it is this fear that separates us from other people. That's why we are alienated from one another and others are perceived as a threat. That's why I want to hang on to my life, because if I give it away, what if people don't? appreciated for what it is. In this light, biological life takes on an entirely different character. Because now biological life becomes the defining, the definition of life, and the theological aspect of giving it away is somehow left in a corner somewhere that we ignore. We are afraid of death, of biological death, Oftentimes because living has been the focus of our energy. It's all been about me rather than me giving my life away to others. 
death is seen as the enemy, not simply because of sin, but because it mocks our vanity. It mocks our self-centeredness. For all the things that we do, death will still be there. So when we are told in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, it has in mind, in part, I think, this alienated and alienating life. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, it is not because he sees death as the end of all things, or that it is the end of this self-offering. After all, wasn't it the same apostle who said, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Death becomes an enemy in part that needs to be defeated because the sinful self has turned life into something it was never meant to be. Life now has been redefined as it's about me, it's what I want, and not what we find in God in whose image we are made, who gives himself to his creation. Our fear of death contributes to our inability to make the gestures of self-giving love. You see, sin trains us to resist the idea of giving ourselves away. In the same way that sin teaches us to fear death, as though it were the end of one's existence. In John chapter 11, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. This is not to say that biological death does not matter. It does. Jesus wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. But what what matters even more is the isolation, the alienation that undermines the life that God intends for us to have. So if you go back to verse number 25 here in John 12, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Those who realize realize that life is not a possession or an idol, to be guarded and worshipped at all costs, to be extended at all costs. Those who categorically reject the isolating project of self-glorification, but instead willingly, graciously give themselves over for the good of others, they are those who will keep their life for eternal life. By linking death to sin, Scripture teaches us to see that death is not simply a biological phenomenon. Death isn't just something that happens. It isn't just something we can explain chemically or biologically. This means that life is not to be judged, well, that it is to be judged by its quality and not simply its quantity. We need to acknowledge something, and that is that illness, persecution, hunger, or despair can be seen as forms of death because, in fact, they distort life. This is not what life is meant to be. Death is a source of anxiety in part because it denies us a sense of well-being with the community. We were speaking earlier about when someone gets sick and you put them in isolation. And that's what oftentimes sickness or illness does. It alienates us from the life of the community. Persecution does the same thing. And in fact, 
it stops short the friendship and the fellowship that we, <coughs> excuse me, that we rightly enjoy. And this is why death is an enemy, because it stops a life from continuing with the life of the community. With all of this in mind, I'd like to add two more pieces to the mosaic as we construct the theology of food. The first is sacrifice. The second will be feasting and fasting. Sacrifice, animal sacrifices. It's quite amazing when you think about it. It is one of humanity's oldest and culturally widespread means of negotiating death. And different theories have been put forward. Why is it that people kill animals as sacrifices? Um, we will look at the biblical view of sacrifice and how it points to understanding of life through death. Let's begin by acknowledging, by recognizing that our culture, and I, by this I mean modern culture, not simply American culture, prepares us or has not, let me start, has prepared us that we fail to appreciate or sympathize with the notion of sacrifice. We just don't get it. It seems so primitive and barbaric. Think of the story of Noah. It's a remarkable story. We applaud him for his efforts. He spent a hundred years building an ark. He collected the animals and put them into the ark and was in there for a year with these animals. And if you know the story, what happens when Noah comes out of the ark? He promptly builds an altar and kills some of these animals and offers them as a sacrifice to God. Noah, what are you thinking? You have preserved these animals for over a year. Could not have been a pleasant task. And yet you promptly come out and offer some of them as burnt offerings. Perhaps even more disturbing, if you read the text, we read the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Why did Noah do this? Why did he offer this sacrifice? Well, sacrifice is a form of communication that involves a double offering. You offer the gift, but you also offer yourself. In this form of communication through sacrifice, the person giving the gift or the sacrifice indicates a willingness to be spoken to and molded into a different kind of person. As a result of this offering, the sacrifice, I will not be the same person who came up to the altar as the person who will leave. If I'm a shepherd and I offer a lamb, I show a willingness to adjust my life according to the ways of the good shepherd. If I'm a farmer and I offer fruits and vegetables, I show my willingness to become a gardener, a farmer like God. We looked at this last week. God who exercises care and provision in the garden of creation. Sacrifice also addresses guilt. It is a witness to our commitment to heal relationships. Something has gone wrong and therefore I offer something as a sacrifice to heal the breach that has, has happened. But why 
why is an offering, especially the offering of a living being, of such importance to establishing communication or communion? To answer this, we need to go back to where we started. For people to live, they must eat. Which means they must consume the lives of others. This is both a humbling and a terrifying thought. It's humbling because it makes us realize we cannot survive on our own. We depend on the lives of others, on the deaths of others. No matter how resourceful we are, we are not the sources of our own life. So the offering of food as a sacrifice is saying, this is what I need in order to continue, but I give this as a sacrifice. It was given to me as a gift, and I now return it as a sacrifice. To offer food to another is to acknowledge that life is not to be taken for granted. Neither is it to be hoarded as a possession to be used however I want. We may work for food, we certainly do, but we don't farm, do we? Those who farm, those who plant and water and harvest, that comes from God. And it is inappropriate to think that we are the sources of the life, the lives that we have earned. As a gift, food is something that we must learn to receive and share in such a way as to always be aware of its giftedness. It has been given to us. And so now when we give to others, either to God in sacrifice or to our fellow human beings, we are saying it was given to me in the first place as a gift. To share food is to share life. To invite someone to your table to share food with them is to communicate to them that life is not a possession to be jealously guarded. It is to be shared. And when we speak of sacrifice, all communication begins or should begin with giving, with offering. So it makes sense that when Noah comes out of the ark, he builds an ark or builds an altar and there he communicates with God and God communicates with him. Noah gives new sense. After a year in the ark, he understands life better than he ever did before. That it is, in fact, a gift. You see, in our own sinfulness, I think, we would think, after you come out of the ark, you will look at these lives as so precious that you are the one who has preserved them, and therefore, you have to make sure that nothing happens to any of them. Noah is aware that it is God who has preserved them. It is God who will sustain them. And any species that will continue will continue because of the grace of God. And so he comes out of the ark and gives a graphic demonstration that all life is precious. But more than that, all life belongs to God. By taking care of the animals, Noah showed that he had received the gift of life in an appropriate manner. And the sacrifice reoriented 
Noah's life by directing it to God's caring, sharing, and sustaining purposes. God will sustain the planet. He sustained us in this wooden boat. He will sustain us as we come out of the ark. Like Life is a gift from God. This makes what the prophets tell us all the more interesting. In Isaiah 1, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling in my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. You see, what God rejected was sacrifice of a gift without the offering of oneself. It's much easier, and that's why we find it across the planet, to simply sacrifice an animal but not give oneself. That's what it's degenerated into. You find it in so many cultures. They offer an animal, and that takes the place of the person. And rather than self-giving, the sacrifice becomes self-assertion. This is who I am. This is what I have given. Look at my great offering and sacrifice. Sin is the refusal to give yourself. It is the desire, rather, to have your life for yourself from God. This is about me. This explains why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and not Cain's. I've heard many Christians say, no, the reason Abel's sacrifice was accepted is because it was an animal. It was a lamb, and so you have to shed blood. But if you read through Leviticus, there are other sacrifices to be given. Cain's problem was not that he gave things from the garden. Cain's problem was he didn't give himself. And because it was all about him, he viewed life in a very different way. We should not be surprised that he in turn killed Abel. Having a different view of life, he would have a different view of death. Sacrifice is, in fact, to be the giving of ourselves. The second piece, we'll put put them together, that is feasting and fasting. I think that these really help explain to us or help us understand what the self-offering life is. It helps us understand the rhythms of life. You see, if sacrifice is about healing the alienation and the violence that has come between members, either between us and God or between us and our fellow man, establishing the communion leads to abundant life. So feasting is to be understood as a celebration of the good of others and our membership in a common life. You don't feast alone. You shouldn't. You feast with others. Fasting, on the other hand, is understood as the restraining of personal desires that otherwise would seek to possess and consume the world. They should be seen as two sides of the same coin, two accompanying practices. People should feast so that they do not forget the grace and blessing of creation. People should fast so they do not degrade or hoard the good gifts of God. 
Simply put, we feast to glorify God. We fast so that we do not glorify ourselves. But in doing both, in doing both, we should have a sacrificial sensibility. Ask yourself, what, what prevents feasting? What is there to prevent feasting from turning into a lavish and unhealthy exercise in self-glorification? An exercise in which the gifts of the world are aggressively and perhaps even violently appropriated for a vain purpose. What is it that prevents feast from simply becoming pigging out? Well, in the Old Testament, when people gave a sacrifice, at the end of the sacrifice there was to be a meal in which they ate part of the sacrifice. And thanksgiving to God for what he had done was given. You see, when they gave the sacrifice, God was present. When they ate the meal, God was present. Not because God needs to eat. Because he was there because they are his people. And he acknowledges what they have given, but also that he is the one who provides for them and cares for them. That what they have is a gift. When feasting loses this sense, then it becomes hollow, it becomes destructive, it becomes a vain exercise, an exercise in vanity. Rather than saying, look at the gifts God has given, personal ambition and success may be the focus. To demonstrate to everyone, look how much food I have because I've got a, a, a raise at work, or I have a lot of money, or I won the lottery, something... Look at me, I am successful, therefore I will give all this food to share with people. In our culture, in which conspicuous consumption seems to be the norm, it is a mark of achievement to have too much to eat, to overdo it. So what we consume in such a feast is not seen as a gift from God, but a sign of the host power. He or she has wealth and power. And look, it is evident because look at the food that they have provided for this feast. An author in his book, In Tune with the World, argues that a utilitarian, pragmatic, calculating, profit-obsessed culture cannot experience genuine festivity. Why? Because there are two crucial issues that are missing. One is love and the other is harmony. There is no sense of membership, of community. It is, look at me, I am the host, and I am putting on a spread for you to show you how much money and wealth I have. At a genuine feast, the hosts give themselves to their guests. They give of their time, of their talent, of their livelihood. And the focus is not on the host. The focus is on the divine giver, the creator who has made this all possible. What about fasting? Feasting is not the opposite of fasting. I want to be clear about that. Gluttony is the opposite of fasting. If you think about it, feasting is primarily about consumption. You say, well, wait a minute, 
I thought we were against conspicuous consumption. Feasting involves consumption, but it is not primarily about intake, about how much food you can stuff in yourself. It is about self-offering and the generous honoring and sharing of gifts that have been gratefully received and cherished. That's what feasting is about. Gluttony, on the other hand, is focused on the self and self-satisfaction rather than sharing and communal celebration. Gluttony is the opposite of fasting, and on some level even the opposite of feasting, because it knows nothing of self-offering. For gluttons, the comfort of the stomach has become an end in itself. For gluttons, as Paul puts it in Philippians, the belly has become their god. We looked at gluttony when we looked at the seven deadly sins. By the way, if you look at these seven deadly sins, if you embrace these, if I could put it this way, if you practice these sins, it makes it impossible for you to give your life away as a gift. Because these sins are all about me and what I want and what I want to do. These sins keep the focus on the individual rather than the community or the membership. In gluttony, the primary concern is that food or drink be immediately available, that it be plentiful, and that it be good. Now, we tend to think, because of other things, we tend to think of gluttony as an individual matter. We should consider today that it is possible for a whole culture to become gluttonous in its aspirations and manners. The desire to have fresh fruits and vegetables all year long, regardless of their taste, regardless of their nutritional value, regardless of the ecological toll. This, I think, can be understood as a desire to eat without patience, a form of gluttony. The desire to eat too eagerly is often seen in the fact that many people eat fast food on the run. That it's actually not fast enough that you're driving through, you have to eat while you're on the run. Or that we want highly processed foods that can be cooked in three minutes or less. There's so much that could be said about this. But stop and think, why is it that people become anxious about food? You could blame advertising. You could, in fact, blame the convenience of fast food. The billboards that keep food always in our view, in our vision. The advertisements on TV, and I can speak personally of this. There's nothing worse than being on a diet and watching TV. Because you don't realize it until you're doing without how you are assaulted with these images of food. What has happened? Cut off from its roots of gratitude, of being thankful to God for what he has given us, the gifts of food. Now it is reduced to either fuel or pleasure. Fuel to keep me going or pleasure as a comfort food at something that I want. The fact that our culture has a twisted or misshapen view of, misshapen view of food 
can be seen in the disappearance of fasting as a practice within the church. Regular, a regular feature of the church, fasting is not. We've been going through this in Sunday school. It's something we find in the church in the past. But as we become a consumer society, that's not something we want to talk about. There are deep, different types of fasting for different periods of time. There are different forms of abstinence. There are different reasons for fasting. Scott McKnight, in the book we're going through, refers to a grievous sacred moment, which may lead someone to fast. Sometimes fasting is individual. Sometimes it is communal. What we need to realize is that eating is not simply about taking in fuel. And fasting is not, cannot be reduced or should not be reduced to stopping the intake of food. How we eat, what we eat, how much we eat, demonstrate what we think our responsibilities are to one another and to the world. People who fast learn that food is a gift because they've been without for a while. It's not to be taken for granted or exploited. Not everyone gets this, as is clear in Isaiah 58. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. They're fasting, but they're not thinking about God. It is not a giving of themselves to others. It's all about them. God, look, we're fasting. Why haven't you noticed? Well, people who fast learn that too much of the time, their lives are given to the pursuit, to the aggressive disposition to just get and get and get. And when you fast, in a sense, you step back from that and say, oh, that's how I've been, been living my life. Just as in Isaiah 58, they're fasting, but they're still exploiting their workers. They're not getting the message. People who fast learn that in many of our actions, we presume that the world's gifts exist for our own enjoyment. Fasting should lead us to a realization about the responsibilities of life together. When we do not eat, when we fast, we demonstrate that food is a precious gift from a self-giving God. It's not to be taken for granted. And when we fast, we can more fully appreciate food as a precious gift. So to take everything we've looked at today, life, death, sacrifice, feasting, fasting, all of these are important components as we try to think about, and not merely leave it in the brain, but put into practice a theology of food. How is it that I am supposed to eat? How am I supposed to view food? For us today, I think the central point is that we need to understand that the nature of life, as seen in God, is the giving of oneself. If we do not think in terms of self-giving, then everything gets redefined. Life is something to hang on to. Death is something to be feared. 
Feasting is pigging out. Fasting is to be avoided. But if we recognize that God created because he is a self-giving God, should not be surprised that he then sends his son who gives his life. This is the pattern. Then life is something that we give away. And death is not something to be feared. Feasting is a celebration of God's gifts. As is fasting. Fasting says food is precious. It's a gift from God. And it's not about me. And ultimately, sacrifice. Sacrifice sort of puts it all together. We give of ourselves to others. I must confess, and my memory is not what it used to be, but it seems that when I was younger, I heard the word sacrifice a lot more in daily conversation. People talked about sacrifice, and not animal sacrifices, but sacrificing one's life for one's country. Giving some, I don't hear this anymore. I don't think I hear it in the church anymore either. We need to get this right. And in doing that, I think we can begin to develop a theology of food and of eating. As Paul said, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we freely confess that our minds are not what they should be, that our thinking has been much influenced by the culture around us, has been influenced by sin. So we have come to see life as our possessions rather than as a gift from you, as something to be held on to rather than to be given away. So we dread the notion of sacrifice. It almost sounds frightening to have to give oneself away, and yet that is what life is for. So like the culture around us, we avoid fasting and really distort the notion of feasting. By your grace, by your spirit, may we think on these things and come to see the truth of it. May it affect the way we eat and drink. And may we do it with gratitude. We thank you for this day that we could gather to worship you. I pray for John as he'll be speaking the next two Sundays. You direct his thinking. Pray for each one of us as we are away that you would watch over us. Keep us safe. And in a particular way, we pray for this family in Alaska as they face an impending death. Give them grace and comfort them. Give them strength. And now as we leave this place, I pray that your grace and your spirit would go with us. We pray this Jesus' name. Amen.